0: Tonight we're going to be starting with uh, well, something different. I am um, told Tim I was trying to you know, eat some sandpaper and down it with whiskey earlier to, to get my Tom Waits voice in full effect, but I might need your help. Um, you do not want so help. we all need to just get gravelly and loud and do our, <laughs> do our best.
1: Thank you, Brett. Hey, I'm Tim. I know I think almost everybody here, but uh, good to see you here at Emmaus Way. Uh, you guys know this is a community of people that is committed to living into the gospel, not just as an abstraction, but living into the gospel in this space and in this time and in this community. So uh, it's a, we gather every week to not only gather at the table, but to gather around a text. It gives us an opportunity to free each other's voices and to interpret together and kind of learn about that text uh, as a as a community. So, just as a quick, uh, we'll get into this in a bit, but I thought it'd be fun. Um, um, actually, let me do this, Amanda. I think you are leading us tonight. Are you going to start the song? Uh, you guys know our transition of, uh, and we got all these kids tonight, like five hundred of them. So, uh, so, uh, Irish, do you want to do a solo tonight? <laughs> <laughs> but I think our text tonight is, uh, or we're doing the doxology for ordinary time. Doxology, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, join me. Praise God
2: from whom all blessings
1: Another confession tonight. You know, even on Sunday nights, on uh, the inevitable once a year in Duke Carolina Sunday night game, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm good being here. Yeah, you know, know I'm going to see the game. I know I'm going to hate Dan Rhodes uh, just because he's a Duke fan, or hate him because Duke won, or something. But uh, but. Uh, this thing, the last game of the World Cup, was hard on me. I was kind of driving back from the beach today, shaking a little bit. So I'm going to hit the DVR hard tonight. But that was after an over commitment to the World Cup the last month. It was it was hard to miss that tonight. So, uh, but anyway, we're glad you're here with us. Um, just here was the question I was going to ask just a moment ago. How many of you guys are fans of The Wire? That's our text tonight. Uh, 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 less than half. Uh, the reason I ask that because Brett just killed a great version of "Down in the Hole" is the kind of signature song of the Wire, and it is uh, it's done in five seasons and five different versions. I can't remember. Ben, can you remember all the different versions that are? Um First one's
3: Blind Boys of Alabama, then Tom Waits. Then, uh, there's one with Steve Earl. The last season, there's two more versions in there. Or the Neville Brothers. Yeah, the Neville and, uh, Then the, the kids
4: from.
1: Yeah there, you go. yeah, there you go. But Brett, you hit the pantheon with that. And, and, and as you'll, as we kind of get into this, one of the things tonight you'll see is, uh, for the most part, in one lens, looking into Baltimore and the wire, the devil is anywhere but way down in the hole. I mean, that, the devil is out and abounding and on the streets and in everybody's faces. Uh, but that apocalyptic yearning song and text, is a, an amazing undergirding to, uh, to the wire. So we'll talk a bunch more about that. But, Brett, thank you for being willing to, to jump on that song for us. Um, wanted to, I, I, in, in my mind, I can't think of an immediate announcement. Is there an announcement or something that we need to make sure everyone knows uh, for tonight? Sir Ben? Yeah, yeah. Well, what?
3: Oh, oh, there he is. Hey, Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, just so
1: next week, um, as part of our service, we're going to be walking from uh, this space over to New Memorial and then back. Um, so it won't change anything in terms of child care or where we meet or any of those things, but be prepared to, uh, to maybe engage uh, a little differently um, because of the, the nature of that service. And I think because of that, we're also going to be canceling the town hall meeting that was supposed to happen before the service, because people will have a chance to see the space during the service, but we will still be hanging
5: around afterwards to talk through questions and concerns you might have uh, about the, the
1: space, sort of conversation, weighing of options. So, preparation-wise, that was important, is that one of the things that's going to be important to us, we really want to walk the space, and we're going to frame this in kind of a a spiritual, disciplined way of discernment, is walking from here, the two blocks to Duke Memorial, uh, doing communion and some music in that space, kind of experiencing that space, but significantly for you guys uh, a prayerful journey uh, of discernment because obviously uh, we have two great options Uh, we we will probably frame it as one part one walk in silence and another walk in conversation either there or back but we'll have that organized but for preparation one of the things that we would desperately ask from you is to be prayerful and in conversation with each other we see those conversations with each other certainly acts of prayer in terms of discerning about what the next chapter, what the next uh, space will be for Emmaus Way. And obviously we're in lots of great conversation with reality and that we'll probably make some changes and all kinds of things if we stay here. But obviously Duke Memorial has been over backwards to invite us in as, um, as more than just tenants, but people who share that space with them. And so um, we would we truly one of the things that you know in terms of Emmaus Way is the things that we do missionally come out of the Voices and lives of our community and your sense of discernment about that space will be absolutely significant in this space as well so again uh, I look forward to, to next week and then we'll be back into the gospel according to in, in two weeks but Brett it's a delight to have you with us again and uh, look forward to uh, uh, getting to the wire here in a bit and uh, And you're preparing us with uh, what's next uh, abide with me
2: Abide with me, fast falls even time the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. not love me oh as I love thee tonight Nobody's kidding nobody about where it goes I'm sitting down here in the campfire light Searching for the ghost of old Tom Joe He pulls a prayer book out of his sleeping bag preacher lights up a bud and he takes a trash
0: for When the last
2: shall be first And the first shall be last In a cardboard box Meet the underpass
3: Got a one-way
2: ticket To the promised land You got a hole in your belly And a gun in your hand Sleeping on a pillow Of solid rock Feeling in the city at The highway is alive tonight. Where it's headed, everybody knows. I'm sitting down here in the campfire light, waiting on the ghost of old time Joe. The blood and hatred in the air Look for me, Mom, I'll be there There's somebody fighting for a place to stand A decent job or a helping hand Wherever somebody's struggling to be free Look in their eyes, Mom, you'll see The highway is alive tonight. Nobody kidding, nobody about wearing clothes. I'm sitting down here in the campfire light with the ghost of old time Jones.
1: length about both of those songs, but that's a really good framing for us tonight of the idea of how does the world work for many many people outside of our own experiences of privilege how does it work and and if you were outside of those experiences what would your prayers be that was one of the ways that song struck me lots of others it's perfect framing for kind of entering the world of the wire tonight and then and then stepping into a biblical text in the gospel that is one that's often not read because it's hard to read which is which is Luke 18 which we're going to jump on as well tonight but hey this is our opportunity to stand up, to greet each other, uh, to uh, pass each other the peace of Christ, if, and by chance you're around somebody you don't know or don't know very well, please introduce yourself, and it's a good chance to grab some coffee and some snacks as well, and I'm going to bring us back together in about two minutes with uh, one, uh, one Ben Haas to uh, get us going tonight, so please stand up and greet each other. So quick reminder of kind of This is really our second or third night in the series. Um, uh, Just a quick reminder of what we're going to try to do uh, each week this summer is the focus of the night is not so much the lens, but what we see out of the gospel from the lens. So, like, for example, the goal two weeks ago uh, wasn't, you know, to to enlist all of you guys in the, uh, a, a, a Marxist party or something like that. Though that'd be fun. Uh, the the uh, But to see what does what does talking about that vision of economic and society show us in the gospel that we may not see ourselves and remind yourself. In fact, this is a, a, one of the best ways to enter our dialogues this summer is to remind yourself of who you are and what your experiences are. For example, your gender, your um, your your, your life, the key experiences that you've had, whether, whether you're in a relationship or not, kids, all the, the, the things that you might describe about your life are ways that you see the world around us, and they're inescapable. Um, I sit down and read the Bible and I never read it as a non-male. I never read it as someone who was not a Southerner, who uh, went to Carolina, has lived in Chapel Hill and Durham for 22 years, have two kids, uh, been married for 30 years, those, those type of things. And every failure that I've had, every frustration that I've had, every success that I've had, all of those things are, are, are ways that I see the text and so one of the challenges that we all have is that we read the same biblical text the same way unless our, cha- our lives are changing radically. Um, and one of the beauty of kind of taking other texts, be they film or music or um, a whole range of other things, other people's lives, is those texts engage us um, in uh, in a way of reading the text in a way that you never would. I've told this story before. Elizabeth, do you remember, this was maybe 15 years ago, my former church, I, was, I had done a passage, uh, a, a gospel text, and spoken on it. And it was one of those rare Sundays where I, I said, yeah, that was pretty good. You know, That was actually, you know, on the pretty good-o-meter, it was pretty good. I mean, people should have sat back and said, that was pretty good. And Elizabeth and I have been friends for a long, long time. And Elizabeth came up after church, and she said, "You know what? That was pretty good." Uh, and then she said, "But you know what? A woman would read that text entirely differently." And I realized, "Oh my gosh, I had an inc- it was it, I had an incredibly male overlay." And had I asked even. One woman, what you see in that text, there would have probably been, hey, this will go this way or this way. And so that's one of the things we're doing this summer is we're forcing ourselves to engage our different experiences and then experiences that are well beyond the norm for us. And I would suggest that The Wire portrays a vision of our society, particularly our cities, that's one that even living in Durham, which is similar in some ways to Baltimore, we may not see. So Ben is our wire expert, uh, and and uh, and I love this text. Uh, Amanda, how many times has Ben watched The Wire? Three, and, two, and and, and, and and so um, I thought we would take. Uh, let Ben kind of guide us. He's picked a scene that I think is going to be really helpful for helping us talk about Luke 18. But Ben, uh, just to turn it over to you, uh, here's a kind of a barrage of maybe two questions. Uh, why do you think the wire is an important um, uh, text for us as a community to be sensitive to? And why do you love it? I mean, why, why, how has it affected your own experience thinking about life, the gospel, otherwise? So kind of get us going on that.
3: Yeah, I think that's a good framing of the question, because I think The Wire is one of those shows that made this consensus best American television show of all time, right? So that, that can sometimes suggest that there's just a way to approach this, and either you see that or you don't see it, and you get it or you don't get it. But I think for me, my first encounter with The Wire was a very personal one. It was very sensitive to where I was at at the time. So it was in 2009, so The Wire had already run its full course. It started in 2002, went through 2008 in five seasons. So I was coming to it as like, oh, wow, this is a great television show. I was a first-year PhD student at UNC, and I think I actually had a professor in a seminar mention The Wire be like, oh, this is great. So I took this thing up, and I got the DVDs on Netflix, and I sat down to watch it, and I found it to be this really challenging show. Um, and particularly for me at that time, because it, it starts slow, it throws a lot at you, it's extremely complex, and for me, it countered two narratives that I was sort of trying to sort out the, at that time, and the first one was this simplistic, sheltered individuality that I had from a small town religious childhood, you know, the things are pretty much about me and my understanding of what the gospel is, and Jesus is to me, and we we have a way of thinking that pretty much takes care of the world, whether or not it fits other ways people think, and that doesn't matter, because we're pretty well right, and they're pretty well wrong, and so I had sort of like spent several years trying to work my way through that, after that, and going to evangelical college, and things like that, so that was one narrative, and the other one was this kind of burgeoning, liberal, collect- collectivist ideal, right, like I had just watched Obama beat Hillary Clinton and run for president and win and I just voted democratic for the first time and change was coming to America. And you know, it's like when you're when you're coming from where I come from and that's a that's part of your gateway into something different politically and ideologically, it's very easy to just be extremely reactionary and just jump to the other end of like, well now we have some solutions. This is good. But I think what the wire did is it totally countermanded either those narratives as in any way valid or or, or binding in, in the world we live in. Because the show was more complex than either of those simplistic lenses. And and Two Loves, it showed individual characters who were far more complicated than any lens that I could have put onto them. Drug dealers who were really great, great people. And cops who were jerks. And judges who were crooked. And prosecutors who were trying to do the right thing next to the defense attorney that was trying. You know, all this, all this complexity. And then it put that in a context of this ridiculously complex societal system of, like, government and the Justice Department and cops and people on the street and all this complexity of the systems that were impacting and sort of framing what these complex individuals were up to. And that made it a very difficult series to watch, but it also allowed it to be something that could mirror my journey into trying to figure out how to craft a posture and a place in the world that was a lot more complex than what I imagined it might have been growing up, or even than maybe what some alternatives that to that might might have been. So I think I watched I've watched it three times now. Each time um, I've been maybe a little bit more familiar with the narrative. The first time I watched it, I you know I no clue what anything about drug culture that it was describing. The third time I watched it, we're living in a place in East Durham where we just had two people shot within 100 yards of of where we live. So it sort of mirrored my growing familiarity with the problems it described, but it also, you're never going to solve this stuff, right? Like some of what The Wire gives us is... It's, it's prophetic, it introduces a prophetic notion of what the world is and how the world is, and it's complex. And it's, It allows, you can revisit it and re-explore it, and it'll find you at a different place than maybe it did um, when you watched it before. So,
1: You know, tell me if this is fair. I was running errands in Durham um, last Sunday. And I was cutting across town in ways that I've never cut across a town. Meaning, you know, my normal north, south, and east, west was northwest, southwest, and places that I wasn't normally uh, at. And one of the things that we know this, but it was so amazingly uh, compressed that I was going from different socioeconomic groups instantly. Like, literally, cross the street. Uh, And and obviously, in Durham, we have a community that is, what, 55% non-white, I think. But, but it still has strong locations of races where, where most of the people might be uh, African American or Hispanic in certain areas and certain places where most people are white. And you guys know the, the, the thoroughfares. You can cross Roxborough into East Durham, and it changes pretty radically. You guys live uh, about two blocks over that direction, and it, it's, the, the world changes, and I, and I experience that uh, very dramatically. Um, I, I recently just got back from Baltimore. Kendall's looking at a school in Baltimore, and so we were in kind of a, a wonderful private school, uh, less than a mile from where the scenes of most of the wire took place. And it was just really interesting to see that we live in this world where we like to keep those things separate from us. We like to keep things, whether it's racial or socioeconomic, or um, or or, and, and solutions feel really different when you're sitting in one place rather than another. And I think that's one of the things you're saying, Ben, is that and and the wire messed you up on both sides of things. Uh, From from, uh, one perspective to another's perspective, neither held together very well in watching the wire, which in some ways means this is a fantastic gospel text. Because can you imagine Jesus telling the stories that Jesus told? How many people were furious with the stories? More than half, I would suggest. How many people were uncomfortable with the stories? More than half. I'd I dare you might find this but I'm I can't find a Bible passage where Jesus spoke and people just said oh I get it thank you for letting us know because part of what he was trying to do is craft a story that got around their stories already so you've done that for us you've uh, give us a little bit more about what the wire is about and what are we about to see I think we're gonna do like a like an eight to ten minute cut this is a really good scene by the way uh, which season is this this uh, yeah, so
3: the one we're going to watch comes from the second season, um, The Wire. It's it's it, one of the unique things about it is it treats Baltimore and Baltimore systems as kind of the ultimate character. You have a lot of a lot of very complex individual characters, but the overarching series deals with Baltimore itself, and it does it in five parts. The first one's kind of about drug culture. You get a lot of cops trying to fight the war on drugs, and then the people who are, you know, on the front lines of that war, and a variety of. Situations. The second season gets into um, white-collar labor down on the docks, You have the stevedores union and corruption within that union. Um, the third gets really deeply into politics, into like a mayoral race and watching all that. All these sort of things you have looked at in the first two seasons on a, on a grander scale within the city. Um, the fourth one takes education as it lends and goes into the schools and follows four particular middle schoolers on a journey through, I think it's like their eighth grade year. Um, as they're sort of having to find their place and make their choices to exist within this system that, that Baltimore's, off. what are the options for how they're going to live this out? And then the fifth one goes into journalism and takes kind of does an umbrella thing and says, well, if you're going to try and describe what we saw in the first four seasons as a journalist and get to that and be prophetic within that context, what is, what is that going to look like? And so by the time you get to the end, you, have a, you see huge character arcs, but you also see this arc of the city as a system and an ecosystem, and how how it all fits together, how it's broken, where hope exists, where pain exists, and yeah. And if
1: you come into it, and, and probably a lot of people like myself, even if I'm telling myself, don't see it this way, don't see it this way, the first scene or two of the first season, you might have this grid... Young African American male selling drugs—that's probably a bad person, right? And uh, and the writers of the Wire will mess that up in a heartbeat. Uh, that that you'll have a sensitivity and an amazing respect for those characters as individuals created by God, and then you'll look at other people and go, "Oh my gosh, that lawyer needs to be killed now." Uh, and so it, it's amazing how the the powerful shifts happen in this in terms of discomforting us from. Uh, our, our thought. That's a great introduction. What
3: are we going to watch now? Yeah, so it comes to the middle of the second season, um, and it represents kind of the fruition of events that started in the very first episode. And it's not its not really spoilery. There's not a, lot, a lot of stuff you'll find here that you wouldn't learn pretty early on in the first season. But um, it sits us down directly in the midst of this complex urban ecosystem, and it shows us a lot of characters in that. You got some drug dealers, some big, big guys, some not so important guys. Their defense attorney. You got the police who are prosecuting those guys, the prosecutors that are trying to bring the case against them, the judge, and then there's some regular citizens tied up in it as well. And they're all in the same courtroom space. So the setting is like a Baltimore City courtroom. You have this Judge Phelan who's presiding, and this, there's someone on trial, Bird, who's. Um, a member, a kind of enforcer for this prominent West Side Baltimore drug organization, the Barksdale family organization. Um, And he has killed a man named William Gant. And at this point in the series, pretty much everybody in this courtroom knows full well certain things. That um, There was a previous trial that was before this one, about maybe a year before. Um, And another Barksdale gang member has killed a man in broad daylight in a housing project parking lot. And William Gant, who's the current victim in the trial we're about to watch, he was a maintenance man. He happened to see this drug, this drug uh, per- enforcer kill the guy in the parking mm-hmm. lot. And he was bold enough to testify, even though everyone knows that this organization, this Barksdale Drug Organization, will, will readily kill people to shut them up or intimidate people or whatever so gants bold enough to testify but ultimately it comes to naught because the second eyewitness who also saw it the kind of security guard in the um, in the housing project she is is encouraged to recant her testimony on the witness stand so she countermands her previous statement while on the stand and we see this depicted by There's the chief lieutenant of the drug organization is in the back of the courtroom, sort of like staring her down. And suddenly, her story changes, and the whole case falls apart. So this person that was murdered in broad daylight with two eyewitnesses ultimately gets off. He gets off. And the Barksdales, in response, they're not happy, they're not happy to let that go. They go and then kill William Gant immediately afterwards, the guy who actually stood up and witnessed even though his testimony meant nothing, exactly, their guy got off. So, so his his ultimate recompense for doing the right thing was to get shot. So all that's it. Back in the past, and we're now we're back in the present. We're in this current courtroom with this current trial, and this crafty homicide detective named Jimmy McNulty, who's also in the courtroom for both cases. He has managed to, um, because of his work, everybody pretty much knows this backstory. They know Barksdale the organization, killed a guy, undermined the trial for that murder by intimidating a witness, and then they murdered the honest witness to send a message. Everyone's clear about this fact. So into this situation comes Omar Little. And Omar is part this frightening specter of an armed robber, and he's part a lovable rogue. He's always <laughs> jumping between those, and you'll see that. Robin Hood with a shotgun. Exactly. Yeah, he's awesome. And he makes a living robbing drug dealers like the Barksdales... And so obviously, they have a pretty acrimonious relationship. But on top of the fact that he's been robbing their people, they have, in response to that, killed one of his closest beloved associates. And so Jimmy McNulty, Detective McNulty, knows that Omar is going to look for a violent revenge, but happens to catch Omar before that happens, and gets him to testify against Bird, who's on trial for killing the witness, As a kind of revenge, so Omar is going to play the eyeball witness um, against the drug organization that he's been robbing for the last five years. And now Detective McNulty knows. So the final wrinkle: Barksdale people, the defense attorney McNulty, and probably even the prosecutor and the judge all know that Omar did probably didn't actually see Bird kill the man he's about to say he killed, but. That's the context in which Omar comes to testify.
1: Because they know Bird is dirty. And so it's going to happen. Omar is the ultimate badass. I mean, literally, when he walks through the streets, sometimes people in drug stash houses just throw the money and drugs out the window before he gets to them. He has such a reputation. So he is the man. We love Omar.
6: Do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Surely, do. State your name for the record
7: Omar Devon Little.
8: Mr. Little, how old are you?
7: About 29. There, about.
8: And where do you live?
7: No place in particular, ma'am.
8: You're homeless?
7: And the wind, so to speak.
8: And what is your occupation?
7: Occupation?
8: What exactly do you do for a living, Mr. Little?
7: I rip and run. You... I robs drug dealers.
8: And exactly how long has this been your occupation, Mr. Little?
7: Oh, I don't know exactly. I venture to say maybe about eight or nine years.
8: Mr. Little, how does a man rob drug dealers for eight or nine years and live to tell about it?
7: Uh, Date of time, I suppose.
8: So you're saying you were at the opposite end of the parking lot when the assailant drew his gun? There, about. And do you see the gunman who killed Mr. Gant anywhere in the courtroom today?
7: Hey, yo, what up, bird?
8: For the record, you are identifying the defendant, Marquise Hilton.
7: It's just bird to me.
8: And Mr. Little, you had seen him many times before, had you not?
7: Yeah, we jailed together down the cut. Jackson, Your Honor. May we approach?
5: Quite a witness, ain't he? <laughs> World on the street is Oma oh, ain't nowhere
7: near that rises when this ship pops street said little cocksicles on the east side uh, Sticking up some ash the avenue, niggas It's the word on the street, huh? Trouble is string, We ain't on the street We in a court of law Your Honor Objection is noted and preserved for the record Mr. Levy, move on Thank you, Your Honor Jurors will disregard that last comment From the witness in which he explained Where he had last encountered The defendant
8: Yes or no, Mr. Little? Prior to the shooting, did you know the defendant?
7: I mean, I knew the man, but it wasn't like he was no friend or nothing.
8: So you would have no trouble recognizing him from a moderate distance, say 20, 25 yards in daylight?
7: Oh, no, no problem.
8: Mr. Little, do you recognize this particular weapon?
7: Yeah, that's Bird's gun, the 380.
8: you You've seen it before?
7: I always flashed that thing.
8: So you'd actually seen it before the day in question? And on the day in question?
7: It was a bird hand.
8: When he shot at Mr. Gantt?
7: Yes, ma'am. The bird covered them shiny little pistols. Objection, Your Honor. Honor. And the boy, too trifling to throw it off even after a daytime murder.
1: You a lying cock sucker, man! The
5: senator will regain control, he will be forcibly restrained, and I will clear the court. The witness's last answer is to be stricken or disregarded by the jury.
4: Mr. Little, can I ask why you came forward in this case?
7: I told the police what I know.
4: Were you offered anything in exchange?
7: Like what? Were you
4: arrested? Were you going to be charged with a crime? And by testifying, did the police agree to drop those charges?
7: Nah, man, ain't even about that.
4: How many times have you been arrested as an adult, Mr. Little?
7: Sure, I have lost count. No, do not have to take it personal.
4: Possession of a handgun, possessing a concealed weapon, assault by pointing, robbery, deadly weapon, possession of a handgun again, followed by violation of parole on weapon charges, followed by one count of attempted murder and use
7: of a handgun in commission of a felony. That wasn't no attempt murder. What was it, Mr. Little? shot the boy Mike, Mike, in his hand passed that all. <clears throat> fixed it so he couldn't sit right <laughs> Why'd you shoot Mike Mike In his um His hind parts Mr. Little You say we had a disagreement A disagreement over Well you see Mike Mike thought well, he should keep that cocaine He was slanging And the money he was making from it. I thought otherwise
4: So you, you rob drug dealers This is what you do Yes sir You walk the streets of Baltimore with a gun, taking what you want, when you want it, willing to use violence when your demands aren't met. This is who you are. Why should we believe your testimony then? Why believe anything you say? That's up to y'all, really. You say you aren't here testifying against the defendant because of any deal you made with police. True that. That you're here because you, you... You want to tell the truth about what happened to Mr. Gant in that housing project parking lot? Yeah. When in fact you are exactly the kind of person who would, if you felt you needed to, shoot a man down on a housing project parking lot and then lie to the police about it, would you not?
7: And look, I ain't never put my gun on no citizen. You are a moral, are you not?
4: You are feeding off the violence and the despair of the drug trade. You're stealing from those who themselves are stealing the lifeblood from our city. You are a parasite who leeches off just like you, the culture of drugs. Excuse me. What?
7: I got the shotgun. Got the briefcase. It's on the game, though, right? All
5: right.
3: So there's the testimony.
7: I'm going to schedule sentencing for the third week of next month. Anything else today?
4: Uh, Your Honor, my client, having preserved the necessary grounds for appeal in the record, wishes me to state unequivocally that regardless of this jury's verdict, he is the victim of wholesale perjury on the part of the state's key witness. And we ask that an appeal bond be set so that he can participate fully in this investigation.
7: An appeal bond on a conviction of first-degree murder? Mr. Levy, get a grip on yourself your Honor. not only will there be no bond pending sentencing but as far as i'm concerned the pre-sentencing report is a mere formality mr hilton has been found guilty of killing a state's witness who testified in this very courtroom he did so in cold blood and for pay unless the pre-sentence report indicates that he is in fact the messiah come again He will very likely be sentenced to life, no parole, by a Baltimore judge who, for once in his life, gets to leave his office feeling that his job actually matters. Mr. Hilton, are you the second coming of our Savior? Excuse me? Are you Jesus Christ come back to earth? Um, see you at Santos. Was it good for you, too? (laughs) Mr.
8: Little? This is good to get out of jail free, one time only, on anything up to aggravated assault.
7: I thank you, man.
8: No, thank you. A rare pleasure.
7: You yeah, got I mean, me. Now for the ceremony life, fuck.
1: You come see me down a the cut, you punk-ass snitch. I saw the shit in your cops like a truck.
7: You think on it, bird. You think on Brandon while you're doing that time, you
1: heard? I'm the you, man.
7: see him shoot the You really asking?
1: So, uh, so Bird's going to do some time uh, and his absence is missed uh, in terms of the Barksdale family, but it, it, a really powerful scene of what really just happened there? And I, I want to take us to the, the similarity. Ben just did an amazing job picking a scene that relates to the gospel text that we have. Uh, so let uh, me turn us to, to Luke 18. You'll see the parallels uh, uh, pretty uh, pretty quickly in this. Uh, would somebody read that? It's just one through eight. One through eight.
6: When the Son of Man comes, will he find
1: faith on earth? Okay, now hold that parable in one hand. Uh, We're going to jump right into it in a second. React first to just what were some of your reactions to that scene from season two of The Wire? Just thoughts. uh, What what did you see in that scene? And that will help us read Luke 18. What did you see in it? question because this is out of our experience zone for most people, right? Feels
5: like there are no good guys.
1: Yeah, where was the clear good guy in that scene? I mean, we know enough about McNulty, the detective, that if you were in season two, you would go, oh, my gosh. If that guy comes near my daughter, sister, or anyone feminine by gender, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, so, yes, so we're the good guys. Uh, and, and we like to live in a world, most of us play games, good guys versus bad guys, right? We were, we were and, and it assumed that it was clearly demarcated. Who were the good guys and bad guys? Even the judge in this scene, we've seen uh, at, at great uh, deviance from some appropriate norms. So, yes, who are the good guys? Other reactions to that scene?
5: Justice is served, but the way it happens isn't particularly honorable.
1: So, Bird killed him. Everybody knows it. <laughs> but we live according to this rule of law that just kind of says, I can't say... I think Daniel Chase cheated on his taxes. I'm pretty sure, because Amber told me, so I'm going to call somebody up, and we're going to get Daniel for tax cheating. You know, And it doesn't matter if he joked about it at communion last week. If I can do that, then society becomes incredibly unstable, doesn't it? And we got the bad guy, quote, unquote, even though we're wondering what really is a bad guy, but the way we got there makes us wonder, hmm, what is working here? Absolutely. Great point. Other reactions yeah that this it's all holding to a thin edge yes absolutely yeah. I mean, we have people here who are involved in athletics growing up who cannot watch Friday Night Lights for that reason. And for people who are in the legal system, as Andrew is, a a law PhD, it's hard to watch that this is the way it works from time to time. Absolutely. I mean, for people who have those experiences, this can be redeeming in certain ways, but deeply. Mimi, uh, this is a show that in our house, Keenan and I watch it face to face. Mimi watches it at her desk on the reflection of the window across from her decks that somehow re- refracted from the tv screen to the window back to her uh, for, in some way makes it a little bit safer because it's it's hard to see i mean you you are implicated in that scene without it without wanting to be so sometimes any other reactions
5: end up loving.
1: Who has told the truth, except for the big lie, more clearly in that scene than than Omar? <laughs> I am a yes, I am a piranha. I'm a pariah with a shotgun. But you, with your briefcase, you are making more money than me off the same system. And the other conundrum, and this is the beauty of the wire, if you watch this, is they did an amazing job of very Jesus-like taking characters that convict us in a certain way. For example, there's a very powerful portrait of the church in Baltimore uh, played by a deacon who is a a mover and a shaker and a, a powerful man of faith but in, even in the casting of this, the, the 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 person who plays the deacon is not an actor. It's actually the guy that inspired inspired Avon Barksdale, the the, the drug lord that we're all talking about. That is the guy who, because he got out of a technicality, served nine years. But he's the drug kingpin of Baltimore. He's the church deacon, and and uh, and that's the kind of casting that happens. Uh, one of the uh, one of the things that's meaningful to me about Omar is again in these characters that turn us around. There's no more frightening dude than, I mean, as I said, Omar walks through the streets and the kids, he has a whistle, people know him. One night, one day, he's just gotten up and he's going to get Honey Nut Cheerios, which we know he loves, at a a store and he happens to accidentally walk by a drug stash and he's going to get Honey Nut Cheerios, he's in his robe, (laughs) he has no weapon on him, but the guys in the drug stash see him walking by and they throw their drugs out the window and their money at him. I mean, he is a bad dude. He is also a gay man. And so that whole conundrum of, you know, um, heterosexual equals strong and smart, uh, 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 homosexual being deformed and uh, frightening and something, that, that whole caricature that our society constructs is completely... Uh, dude defamed by omar who is the man and and so that's part of the you wouldn't have caught that but that's part of the bird versus omar thing is he's saying but at least you're a gay man of which Omar is saying at least you're going to jail and so in some ways our our prejudices are turned on their head by the wire intentionally one more comment anybody else uh reactions it's a, a vivid scene I think, you know, and you would certainly fit in, in this category, Laura, but so many others of, of people in our community who are caregivers and work in caregiving professions. And whatever stereotype you carry to social work or ministry or counseling or school teaching or a lot of things that the folks that you guys do, those don't survive very long in terms of, of the lives that we live. Now, we tell ourselves, you know, we prop ourselves up with narratives of, of our own goodness and, uh, and in many ways, those narratives, uh, they, they, they challenge our ability to hear the gospel as good news. Because the better I think about myself, the less the gospel is good news. Because you know what? I don't need good news. I am a good person. But I watch the wire and I go, you know what? I, 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 different circumstance, I am a different person. Uh, and this is an ecosystem that, and and, but believe me, there's no, no criticism whatsoever in this comment that follows, but I might be the person who buys the beautiful loft condo on the Baltimore waterfront that was bought by drug money, uh, Uh, zoned appropriately for condos by drug money paid to politicians who are, in case the Baltimore, Democrats who are claiming to save the world. And so you're like, I'm just buying a condo in a cool place, but you know what? I am one degree separation from this ecosystem that drives not just this city, but every city in America. And so that's, in some ways, the wire. Now let's look at another crooked courtroom scene. Uh, in Luke 18, we've got a reprobate judge who um, has a widow that has come to him, and it's the job of judges. And in and, 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 and Israel, they were judged by God, right? By how they cared for widows, orphans, people who were outside the system. Now, there is a, a normal reading of this text. This would have been, if you have said for many, many, many years, this would have been the way that I read Luke 18. You know, a, a widow comes to a judge. He has no respect for the law, but she just wears him out. So eventually he just says, you know, what she wants is fine as long as she doesn't come back to my, uh, my um Courthouse, and it's framed with this sentence. Jesus told him a parable about their need to pray always and to not lose heart. Don't lose heart. Pray always. Now, my typical, normal, and I would suggest a privileged reading of this text would simply be this. Hey, you know what? Most of the people out there—judges and lawyers and doctors and people of they are generally good. There's a few rotten eggs out there, but they're good people. And you know, I mean. The police officer's there to help me. The judge is there to help me. And what I'm being told here is sometimes that help that I need doesn't always come immediately. So I'm praying for something. I'm praying to, you know, I, I don't know, um, something good to happen for my kids or something good to happen in life or marriage. And I, You know, maybe God has some reasons why it's a decent prayer. God, I'm a good person. It'd be neat if this happened. And God might say no or or not hear it or be watching the World Cup or something like that and doesn't hear my prayer. And so, you know, it says pray always and not lose heart. And so maybe what I need to do is I just need to pray more. I need to pray more intently and keep praying and keep praying and the World Cup will end and and. Dave Eford's needs who are far greater than mine. You know, God will deal with those things and then sit around and say, Oh hey, yeah, Tim, I had a call from Tim. I'm gonna pick up the call from Tim and 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 oh yeah, 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 this is a good thing. And you know what? Tim has shown some faithfulness because he's been praying over this day in and day out and day in. And it's a pretty good thing. And it meets his needs. And, you know, and so, hey, I'm in. I'm going to do. That's how I would have normally read this is kind of a, a story that challenges our persistence in prayer. That You know, you, you, know that you may not know what's going on, but if you really push it, you push it with God, you keep making your case, you're faithful about those things, then ultimately the things that you want or need because of of your situation as a good person. I mean, I'm not wanting something terrible. I'm wanting something good to happen for my kids. Uh, That will eventually happen. That is a normal, privileged reading of Luke 18. In fact, it's such a normal reading. It doesn't sound good saying it, so, so the best way to deal with Luke 18 is to not read it and not preach it, because you preach it that way, God, just something feels just a little bit wrong about that. But isn't that what it says? I mean, that's kind of what the, sex, the text says to us. So we know that Luke was written specifically for not the haves, but the have-nots. There's no more powerful gospel that hinges on uh, looking at the last being first and the first being last and stating the case in the gospel for people that the world has oppressed, people who are in the lower end of the socioeconomic scale or any kind of prejudice. Luke is the gospel that champions the last and the least of these. So knowing that Luke was not written for me, even though Oh, my praying for my kids is a wonderful thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing at all. It's just I'm saying that that wasn't primarily the interest of Luke in writing his gospel. So, um, so here we have this judge who finally gets it, gets it right. What do you think now, having looked at the wire, seeing this convoluted scene of something that abs- kind of accidentally happens but is good, what do you think Luke 18 is about? And I ask this with a full recognition that it's, this is not an easy parable to get. And I'm going to throw a couple things at you. But what do you think, being sensitized to the difference between privilege and absence of privilege, and being kind of denuded of our sense of some people being good and some people not being good. What do you think this this parable is about?
3: Maybe it's not talking about an exception to reality. Maybe it is talking about the reality.
1: Okay. Yeah, because for me, what's being described in this scene is an exception, right?
3: Because, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. If I did something wrong, I'll get punished. If I didn't, I'll get off.
1: Absolutely. It's a good inversion for us. S.K. Take a shot, and and you're not exposed to get this right. I mean, our wrestling with this is the most important thing. Yes, S.K. Yeah, the idea that we're changing God almost to see it the right way here. At least in this story, the story, God kind of sees it the way of the widow, which is we're set up to say that's the right way. Uh, and, and so we're convincing the judge to, to do the right thing, so to speak. Yeah. You know,
5: I'm just, to have a thought pop in my mind of, 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 in the prophets and where, I don't have specifics, but like where God actually, the prophets to fight back against God for the people, so God is going to destroy people. And the prophets, you know, Moses is saying, "No, no, like, just give me a little more time." You know, let's go a little further down this road. And then God actually changes God's mind on, on what you know to do going forward.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so we, and in that dynamic, what's interesting, and uh, in, in not a parallel, but what's is the wickedness of the people. That the people are are in rebellion against God, so God should acknowledge that they're in rebellion, but we typically enter this parable as Brett's telling us from this perspective of i got to, I'm, I'm trying to do the right thing. I just accidentally, accidentally got a bad judge or a really angry cop who pulled me over on the side of the road uh, but but you know normally. A nice cop would have said, you know, oh my gosh, you're late for church? I mean, come on, this is let's make that a warning, because you're late for church. I mean, you know, uh, but we all know, and we live in Durham, that somebody else who's driving and in in, who might not be late for church might have their car searched along the way. But that's not my experience. My car's not going to get searched. I might even get off. Uh, so, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, and I think, Brett, has, you posed that as well. That's the connection to the prophets in this. This is a, almost an apocalyptic vision of what is the state of the world that we live in. And the parable, I would suggest, is telling us it's not good. The state of the world, the world that we feel so good about, needs to be flipped on its head entirely. Let me read you uh, your breath.
5: I'm a good person, and if I'm a good person, and i be a good neighbor, and I do, you know, I'm friends with people who aren't like me. Then I'm doing the right thing, and I'm right with God, and I'll, and everything's going to be okay, and I'm going to be safe. Um, and I'm not participating in this drug culture. I'm not, I'm not buying drugs. I'm not selling drugs. And I'm going to be okay. Um, and I've, you know, Miss Sarah and I have kind of stepped into it in our neighborhood, just because, like, by buying a house in Old East Durham, and. Thinking, you know, and some of our neighbors too. We've talked to that. You know, you buy a house and you're going to be good neighbors, and things are going to be fine. And we're not participating in that. But if we're not also fighting for those people on a larger level, then we are actually kind of still participating and benefiting from it. Because I got a cheap house because the government is putting money into trying to revitalize East Durham, and my neighbors, you know, two or three houses down we're being good people, not doing the wrong thing. You know, like their kids almost got killed by a stray bullet. Um, and so I think there's, I don't know, there's. I think that we need to find find ways to be more integrated in the way that we talk about this, and the way that. Like, I was wondering, like, what would, you know, someone who grew up, in, you know, in a different place would think of watching that that scene in the wild? People who aren't like us. Um, and I say us is like what we kind of hard, but, you know, like what, would they, what would their perspective be? I don't know. I don't know how to live in that. I, don't, I haven't figured out how to live in that kind of middle space, but there's, I don't know,
1: I'm trying to figure out how, like, I mean, Dane always uses like a third way. Yeah. What is that, what's the third way of doing life? You know, and I think this is, I'll jump to a, a thought, and I'll give you one person's impression of this, but I think what SK and Brett and others are saying is what's deeply challenged in the wire is this idea that we are good and scot-free and that you deserve that house at that house the price that you got. You deserve it because of your goodness. Um, and the, the wire doesn't let any of us off the hook. The portrait of the ecosystem is so large that we all find ourselves in the story. And what SK are saying to us is, what if we turn it around and say that we're not inherently good? Then what are we hoping for? And in one sense, if in me and my goodness, and the way I read it is kind of a privileged reading, I'm hoping for God to eventually do what I'd like to have done. I'm hoping for that's my hope. The world's okay, this situation is amiss. I'm hoping that God will will interact in this situation. But We look at the wire, and here's this band of selfish fools with the shotgun-toting man being the only one who's really truthful in the scene. The rest of it is a bunch of taunts going around there. And we're so messed up that we accidentally get it right in this courtroom, even though everybody knows we're lying. And we don't even want to ask at the end, did you really see him shoot him? You know, he's like, you don't want me to tell that story because we're walking away feeling good about the scene. But that's really not what happens. And in some ways, if we don't position ourselves as the good people waiting for God to do a good thing, then all of a sudden the story is about if this old reprobate, selfish, foolish judge gets it right once, what would a loving, good God as judge do? What could, I mean, that's the hope. No longer is the hope my God intervening in my life in a way that might be good and meaningful. I'm now hoping that God operates as judge of of our society rather than me. Because I know that my operating it always tends to operate in a selfish way. Now all of a sudden we're hoping for, and this is indeed the hope of anyone who's under the thumb. Anyone who is the victim of prejudice. Anyone who has felt the power of the world against them. They're hoping for, I wish I could get a judge. And I wish that judge would be Yahweh rather than the person that we get. Now for us... We might not need Yahweh to be judged because often we enter the situation from privilege. Let me read to you and then we'll uh, put Brett right back up. This is one friend's, I had interviewed this friend a while ago, and he is a, a theologian and a really wonderful person who had been trained in ministry in kind of an all-white perspective in Texas, but this is his journey of reading the Bible differently when he located himself in a non-white community for the first time. Uh, This is just his thoughts on this. um, um, This is part of a book that will be published at some point. He said, you know, it's no surprise that when I read or listened to the parable at the beginning of Luke 18, I thought that judge, the one Jesus calls the unjust judge, was an anomaly, a rare case. I knew that police officers could give you a ticket for speeding and for that reason they might be feared. But for the most part, I was satisfied to believe that law enforcement and the judicial system were to be trusted. Therefore, the parable seemed to be an odd way of talking about prayer. To my teenage and young adult mind, it seemed to be saying, keep on praying for something. Even if it seems like God is saying no to the prayer, just like the sorry old judge in the story who finally came through, God might come through too after a while. But then as he's reflecting, as I sat in a congregation of mostly African Americans, my white body in proximity to their black bodies, my family and cultural heritage laid out alongside theirs, I heard this story in a whole new light. I perceived that for African American Bible readers, it was no surprise to encounter the character of an unjust judge who has no fear of God and no respect for anyone. An aside, I was watching CNN's The 60s. This week, while I was preparing this and interviews of the mayor of Montgomery and of Jackson and the political system, and this, you mean like you're like, there's the judge, there he is, so powerfully painted out there. Um, as many others here have, I've watched the video footage of the rigged system of injustice that protected white assassins from being convicted of murdering blacks. During the Civil Rights Movement, I had read Ida Wells' account of lynch law and the precarious existence of blacks who might seek to improve their economic condition when the legal system was not set up for their good. I had heard of this context, but I had not walked in it. For the first time, I was learning to read the Bible with that history as my own history, too. It was no longer a separate set of events unrelated to the Bible. Now decentered from a white middle-class vision, the entire parable became to take clear shape as addressing the nature of prayer. In light of reading and community, it becomes clear that the parable is not primarily a message for consumers in a consumer society who consume God and want God to help them consume more stuff, even good stuff. While one aspect of the parable's message may be that we're encouraged to keep on praying, the core emphasis seems to be clarifying what sort of God it is to whom we are praying God is not like this judge. The judge is at best an anti-hero. He plays a role in something good happening despite his obvious flaws. Or perhaps the judge is merely a villain. Jesus tells the disciples who are listening to pay attention to the contrast. God is not anything like that judge. If a sorry old reprobate judge like that one can be persuaded to do something right, what do you think you could expect from a good and a loving God? So our hope is not in the system working every now and then. Because what the gospel is telling us as counter story is there's an entirely different way of doing things. But our hope is in a good God, a good judge making it right for everybody. I'm sure many of you guys will remember A.J. Walton's words in one of our dialogues. A.J., Northeastern North Carolina, Gates County, poor, biracial family identifies as black. He said, you know, when when, when white people hear judgment, they hear, God's going to take away something that's mine. In my part of the state, when I read a story like this and somebody tells me God's going to be the judge, I say, finally, they're going to get it right. Finally, judgment for us is the coming of God into our world and making the world that so often turns the roulette wheel to the other color for me. Right, finally. And this is why I think The Wire is a powerful, powerful text. When redemption occurs, no one gets to raise their hand and say, I did that. It seems to, and no one gets to say, my place in the system is good. And if everyone would just work like we do, it would be better. Instead, it just takes a big brush and knocks it all off the table and then asks the question, what would be different? I told you uh, last week one of the great criticisms of The Wire is, given all of our work with Durham Can and IAF, was that they didn't portray organizing in The Wire. There wasn't a portrait of, civil, uh, of, uh, of civic organizations gathering together to make Baltimore a better place. And I would suggest the writers, who were cops, school teachers. And newspaper writers about education and the judicial system did not want us to come away with the impulse that if I were in charge, I'd get it right. Because I read this parable and I say, if I were the old judge... Every now and then, some of you folks would wear me down and I would do the right thing. And we stand back from Luke 18 with the prayer of the Gospels. It's that Emmanuel prayer, God, come into the world. Because we know in your coming into the world, the world can indeed be made right. That's our task in studying the Gospel is how can we as people be participants in the kingdom that God is building rather than the kingdom that we'd like to build. No matter how good our motives are. Luke 18 is an amazing story. And Ben and not just Ben and I would commend The Wire to you as a text that indicts you, shows you hope, and in some way uh, puts the responsibility of that hope often beyond our own control. That's why we cry for the gospel. Uh, Brett, please come and lead us in confession and um, absolution, and and Ben's going to be back up to invite us to the table tonight.
0: Um, This is a song that that might not be uh, as familiar uh, to you, but it's a song I think ties in really well to to a time of confession after a discussion like we've just had where our prayer, um, if we're honest with ourselves, is to to take ourselves out of that centralized view we tend to have of the gospel and, and to, to ask for God to, to reveal his true nature um, to us. So um, I invite you to, to read along with the text if you know it and want to sing it, great. Yeah.
2: Sometimes I get a little lost, and the good life is so hard to see. Sometimes all I can see is the cost. When the price There is no luck to be found besides Spend my natural pride Thinking money and time Wondering where they go And they go And that's when I need some Early in life Come tell me something Fill up these four walls with old melodies Let me know if the big light is shining on me Some nights when the wind is blowing soft And it's been so long since a dream filled my head there's a beauty in every street light and every moth. But all I wanna do is lay down in bed. And it's a long road to travel down. And nothing good seems to stay around. And I'm a solitary man with my pride. At the end of my mind. Talking uncanny, feeling in the dark, in the dark. And that's when I need you to put me in line. Come tell me something, any words are fine. Fill up these folds. big light is shining on me. shining on me Let us pause in life's pleasures and count its many tears while we all Song with the Lord. There's a song that will linger forever in our ears. Oh, hard times come again no more. There's a song Every fleeting looks will say oh
3: So what are we going to do? I mean, that's sometimes I watch The Wire through three times, and every time you get to the end of an episode, end of a season, the end of the whole thing, and you go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Look at this we're living in. Look at this we're stuck in. And David Simon, the creator of The Wire, you, you read interviews with him, and he's happy to give them. He has a lot of thoughts about what he did and why. He'll be, he'll be pretty honest about You know, as a series, he doesn't really grant a lot of hope a lot of what it was is saying, you're implicated here. This is wrong, and, and revealing what's wrong. And it's not about giving us an easy way out. But there are times in the wire where you see that light in the distance. And thinking about it this week, one of the things I thought about was a lot of times that tends to happen in a way not all that different than this table behind us. There's a couple of key points during the series where you have, there's kind of two levels of grunt work going on. There's the cops trying to fight the war on drugs that they know is a hopeless war and they know they've been given a bad mission. But they're trying to do it anyway. And then there's the people that didn't really have a lot of options other than to get into the drug trade. That's how you make a living, that's how you stay alive. And those two people stare at each other on either sides of a chasm, but often when they meet, it's when the cop figures out that maybe there's a cr- great thing. And I think it's the fourth season. This cop, he's done it the wrong way. He's done like the easy busts. And, the, and all of a sudden, someone pulls him aside and says, you know, if you don't nail this neighborhood you're policing, you're never going to get anything done. And you see these great points where you sit down, he sits down with the 17 year old drug dealer and they share a sandwich on the corner, in the corner store, buy food for each other and sit down and eat it together and all of a sudden this huge system that we've seen that was driving them apart, making it impossible for either one of them to ever be reconciled to each other, looks a little less hopeless. Because you like to eat here and this is the best sandwich in Baltimore and I like extra extra horseradish on mine. Whatever it is, they meet each other at a table, around a shared meal, and things look a little bit hopeless. So maybe it's not that different than what we're faced with. We say, like, we could imagine ourselves as the saviors that are going to walk out that door and fix the whole thing, but we know it's not true. We could imagine ourselves sitting around waiting for God to fix it for us, and with doing nothing in the meantime, and we know that doesn't feel right either. So maybe we could do something in the middle. Maybe... We could do what was left for us. The last things Christ did is, is they were expecting his disciples were expecting a grand narrative, a changing, an explosion, a revolution. And he gave them this simple ritual: a table, bread, wine. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. At this table, all those things that are driving us apart, all those massive problems, maybe the start. To fixing some of those things, encountering what's really broken. Maybe we can spend our time between here and whatever in that kind of reality and in the narrative it paints. So in a Mayus Way, we celebrate an open table. Uh, we pour wine or juice over each other, saying this is the body of Christ, or this is the blood of Christ shed for you. We break bread for each other, saying this is the body of Christ broken for you. We invite you to the table. And to find in each other, in our conversations, in an open and equal table, some vision for what might be breaking into the world. Welcome to the table.